Welcome. Glad you're here with us. We're studying the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're going to be looking at the last couple of verses of chapter 2 and beginning chapter 3 tonight. So glad you're here with us, and let's begin with prayer. Father, once again, we are grateful to have your word so readily available to us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of meeting this way and uh, to be able to make contact with each other, even though we may live uh, hundreds and thousands of miles away. So we're grateful to you, Lord, for this privilege. We thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that as we study your word together, and even as those who may listen to the uh, podcast here afterwards, that your word would indeed have its place of dwelling within us, that we might uh, foster its news and its important messages for our own hearts and lives. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would enliven your word to us, and that as a result we would live in accordance with it, and in so doing to give you honor and glory, as well as to show a watching world that your ways work for harmony, for family, for community, and for what is right and good. So, Lord, we bless you for the privilege of study and for the privilege of having your word in our ready, available hands. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, I want to begin by reading. We're going to read the last uh, three verses of uh, chapter 2 and then move in and read the whole of chapter 3. So he's talking here about Epaphroditus. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Messiah, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Messiah Yeshua, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the Torah found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Messiah, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law or the Torah, but that which is through the faith in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, 
But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Messiah Yeshua. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Well, this third chapter is uh, full of very important uh, theological uh, terms and teaching, as you can see. I wanted to start with where we ended off last week with this uh, verse where it says that he was sending Epaphroditus back to them, and for numbers of reasons, but he says, and I may be less concerned about you, because he wanted to have a updated report about how the community in Philippi was doing. So, as I said, we, we see the heart of Paul, the heart of a true apostle, uh, and those who are in leadership to be, have a valid concern for the people of God in their respective communities. Now, the thing I wanted to talk about was, in the Greek, the final phrase, concerned about you, actually does not contain the words about you, but simply has, that I may be less concerned. Surely context would naturally have about you, as that which Paul means, but some have translated leaving out the implied about you and understood the phrase simply to be, I may be less concerned. The verb concerned translates the Greek word alupos, which is found only here in the apostolic scriptures. Though it can surely mean free from anxiety in at least non-biblical Greek texts, it seems to me that the ESV's translation of this final phrase is a bit unfortunate. Why? Because they use the word to uh, to be uh, anxious. They translate it anxious. It translates the phrase, and that I may be less anxious, Paul is saying. If one is reading only the English translations, then there would seem to be a conflict when one comes to Philippians 4.6, where the ESV along with many other English trans, uh, Bibles, translate an entirely different word, meribnao, this way, do not be anxious. So they, ESV translates our word at the end of chapter 2 uh, as anxious, and then this word in 4.6 also as anxious. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying it's wrong to be anxious. So why would the 
ESV had translated that Paul himself was saying that he would be less anxious. Well, the better translation in the ESV for the word in our text would have been concern, which has a positive sense rather than anxious, which is negative and that which Paul points out is contrary to a life of faith. He wanted to hear back about his brothers and sisters in Philippi so that his concern for them would be answered. I just think it's important that uh, our English translators keep in mind that many people are going to be reading the English without having the ability to uh, see or understand or, or know the words that stand behind it. So, let's go on now where he continues to talk about Epaphroditus and about it, what, it, what it means when he returns to them. He says, Receive him, that is, Epaphroditus, then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Well, what does it mean to receive him then in the Lord? The Greek phrase is clearly Paul's admonition that the Philippian community would wholeheartedly welcome Epaphroditus with full and glad joy for the work that he had accomplished for them. In other words, they had sent him in order to minister to Paul, undoubtedly to bring things for him that he needed, and no doubt food and other necessities as he was there in prison. And he went and did the job well. Paul's words here may indicate that he wanted to overcome any sense that the Philippian community may have had, that Epaphroditus had not completed the mission for which he was sent. In other words, why is Paul sending him back? Well, he says, receive him then in the Lord. Receive him as th that it is the will of the Lord, according to Paul's understanding, that he return. The imperative, which means a command, receive, prosdekesthe, is a present imperative. Now, what does a present imperative often uh, indicate in the Greek? It means to do something over and over and over again. In other words, to continue on with the action that is commanded. So, it's meaning that the community's reception of Epaphroditus upon his return should be a lasting, ongoing reception, as the following words make clear. In other words, you're to receive him and understand that he has done the work well, which has indicated that he is uh, someone whom God has equipped to serve as in some form of leadership within the community. But the fact that Paul uses an imperative or command in this case should not be taken to indicate that he anticipated a significant problem. In other words, he's not saying that he feels the... Uh, the people there in Philippi were thinking there was a problem that had occurred. No. Rather, it was common to use this language when encouraging a group of people to give special dignity to someone who was sent to them by the hand of a recognized authority. And we see this not only in biblical literature, but in non-biblical literature of the period as well. It is surely possible that the Philippian community who sent Epaphroditus may have questioned why he was returning to them when Paul still remained in prison. That Paul's letter, which Epaphroditus was carrying with him, confirmed what they had heard regarding his illness, not only gave witness of his willingness to serve Paul at great personal cost, but also confirmed what he endured to accomplish the mission for which he was sent. 
I mean, he contracted a sickness that must have put him down for some time. This is what Paul emphasizes by adding the phrase, in the Lord. Receive him in the Lord. To receive him in the Lord emphasizes that Epaphroditus not only fulfilled the mission which the believing community sent him to accomplish, but that he did so both by means of the Lord's empowering as well as giving glory to the Lord by attending to the needs of his apostle. You know, it's always interesting when we see people rising to a positions of leadership or authority or, or some uh, specific mission within the local community. It's always uh, interesting to see how they arrived at that position. And the scriptures are clear that it ought to be a, a test of character that would prepare someone to be either a teacher or in some leadership capacity uh, in some ways within the local body of the Messiah. This is why there clearly are uh, set out characteristics and qualities and those things which are required of someone who is going to be an overseer and a teacher. And when those requirements are met and it's clear that this isn't something that just is recently taken place in a person's life, but it characterizes their entire character, then that becomes the basis upon which the believing community can see that the Lord is moving this person into a place of leadership. And this is obviously what Paul is talking about with regard to Epaphroditus, because he had ministered well to Paul, and he had done what was right even in dire circumstances, and done so with the right spirit, with the right attitude, and therefore with the right outcome. So they were to receive Epaphroditus with all joy, that is, with the full realization that his service to Paul and the means by which he was able to do so as one sent and supplied by the Philippian community should be a source of joy, realizing that the Lord had enabled them to show love and care for Paul, and thereby honoring the Lord himself who had commissioned Paul as one of his apostles. The whole community, therefore, were participating in the very mission which Yeshua himself commissioned Paul to undertake. So, the point that I'm making here is when we assist someone else in terms of their ministry, we are doing so as unto the Lord. We are blessing Yeshua himself. For Yeshua is the one who has commissioned that person, actually, and made it known to the community that, that he uh, is ministering in. Now, it's not only for men. There can be positions of service and, and so forth amongst the women as well. But it's the character of the person that is most important. Not simply the willingness, but the ability as evidenced by a character that isn't just something that's now and again, but a character that meets the qualifications of someone who walks regularly with the Lord, has a solid reputation within the community of their abilities and of their desire to serve and not simply their desire to be in charge. Apparently, Epaphroditus was one of those kind of men who had proven himself to have 
the necessary characteristics to be a true servant for the Lord. And he says, and hold men like him in high regard. Paul uses very similar language in commending uh, Stephanas, Fortunatas, and Achaicus in 1 Corinthians 16:15 through 18, and admonishing the believing community in Corinth to honor them, both for their service to Paul as well as showing themselves to be faithful leaders for the community itself. So here again we have just an example. Paul says, now I urge you, this is in 1 Corinthians 16, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas, and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, uh, Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Now we see that this same uh, that they they have supplied what was lacking is is used also in our uh, epistle with regard to how the community had sent Epaphroditus. By stating that the Corinthian community should be in subjection to such men, Paul is not giving leaders within a local community ultimate authority, for that alone belongs to Yeshua, who is the head of the ecclesia, and who is to be uh, accorded the ultimate authority in all matters. We read, for instance, in Colossians 1.18, and we have a similar reading in Ephesians 1.22-23, He, that is Yeshua, is also the head of the body, the ecclesia. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. In other words, within our local communities, we're not to see the leaders as the primary authority were to see Yeshua as the primary authority and expecting and helping and uh, encouraging our leaders to follow His lead. And oftentimes, most often, how is that found? By having a unanimity amongst the community that indeed what Yeshua is, has taught us in the Word is being lived out by the community itself in whatever ways possible. Thus, in t- in, this in turn emphasizes the truth of sola scriptura, that the scriptures and the scriptures alone are the final authority for our faith and the manner in which we are to live out our faith in Yeshua. Appointed and recognized leaders, we can call them overseers, some would call them pastors, are commissioned to teach the word of God and to make the scriptures the governing voice for how the local assembly is to function and fulfill its mission. Now granted, uh, the scriptures don't give us express details necessarily about uh, every way that the, uh, the truth of the scriptures is to be lived out within a given community. There are going to have to be wisdom, and that wisdom is hopefully to be expressed and, uh, and taught by the leadership. But ultimately, it's not the leaders who decide. It has to be Yeshua himself working in the community and the Word of God being plainly set forward by those who are teachers to help the community be what it's supposed to be in God's eyes as we serve our Master, our Savior, our Lord, Yeshua. Well, further, 
viewing Epaphroditus as an example of one who fulfilled the role of community leader, Paul teaches us here that such recognized and appointed leaders who make it their life work to lead, instruct, and care for the spiritual life of the members of a believing community are to be held in high regard. Such high regard, which is the uh, Greek word entomos, is that which is the reward for diligent, humble, and Messiah-honoring care and leadership within the local assembly. Paul speaks to this as well in his first epistle to Timothy. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, I know there's been a lot of discussion about what double honor means. It could simply mean uh, a special honor. Okay, Others have considered it to be that their livelihood would be uh, uh, given to them so that they could spend their time at preaching and teaching and preparing and, and shepherding and so forth. But you can see that this is especially what the scriptures teach. And uh, it's unfortunate that in our modern world, especially in modern Christendom, uh, not everywhere, but generally speaking, a single pastor is basically the one who makes things work, makes things go, um, finds ways to bring people in and to cause the community to grow and so forth and so on. And if things aren't going well, he oftentimes is, uh, and we could even say in our day, she or he uh, would be dismissed and someone else found to be the new uh, uh, leader, <laughs> the the new entrepreneur of, of getting people in. Making the thing work, it's almost like a business. Well, that's not what the scriptures teach. We should be holding the word of God as the center of our attention because it points us to Yeshua. We're not to be entrepreneurs. We're not to be trying to build something on our own efforts and our own acumen and our own abilities. We're to be implementing the word of God and hoping and praying and working to have the Word of God be that which governs the way we act with each other and how we meet together and what the goals are of our being a community. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's, he's saying uh, if someone who does well, like Epaphroditus, ought to be worthy of, of care and encouragement and help. And so they're to receive him as he comes back as someone that Paul has said has done his work well as unto the Lord. With this regard, Calvin offers in his commentary this encouragement. Let everyone then who is desirous that the church should be fortified against the stratagems and assaults of wolves, make it his care, after the example of Paul, that the authority of good pastors be established as, on the other hand, there is nothing upon which the instruments of the devil are more intent than on undermining it by every means in their power. It is so egregious when we hear, as we sometimes do, and uh, we've seen this in our own area, where someone who was doing it apparently very well in a, a messianic group in our area uh, and uh, had a family that seemed to be doing very well ends up in divorce and leaving and even denouncing Yeshua. 
and uh, it's uh, it's so egregious. But the enemy wants to take away leaders, and that's why it's important for us to hold our leaders up in prayer, to encourage them in their work, and and to accept them as one equal with the rest in terms of simply being together with the believers as one with all who are waiting upon the Lord for strength and giving the Lord the glory that he deserves when things go well. It isn't the leader who receives the glory when things go well because every leader who's doing what he should be doing points people always to the Messiah. So then we come to the last verse of this uh, chapter because he came close to death for the work of Messiah risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. It was because Epaphroditus was willing even to put his life on the line in order to serve and care for Paul on behalf of the Philippian community that Paul admonishes the community to honor him and by doing so to honor Paul himself and ultimately Yeshua who commissioned Paul as one of his chosen apostles. In other words, when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing as one of Yeshua's apostles, and the Philippian community was to receive this letter with that authority. When he says that Epaphroditus is to be held in high esteem, it's because he has witnessed what God has done in the life of this man and how this man was willing to uh, submit himself to do God's work, even uh, if it entailed him uh, nearly coming to death through the sickness that he had. For even if Epaphroditus had not become ill, he still was willing to put himself in a vulnerable position as one who, like Paul, was a follower of Yeshua as well as openly being a friend and helper of Paul himself. In other words, it wouldn't have taken any of the Roman officials to figure out that Epaphroditus was a close friend and a helper of Paul. If being a follower and apostle of Yeshua resulted in Paul being persecuted for his faith, then surely Epaphroditus could likewise have become a target for similar persecution. It's obvious that Paul was put into prison by trumped-up charges, which were lies, and yet the authorities received it as though it was true. Well, would you be willing, would I be willing to be publicly part of uh, helping Paul (laughs) in this kind of a situation? Wouldn't that just point us out as being like him and for him? And wouldn't that mean that we also could be targets of similar persecution? This was undoubtedly the case with Epaphroditus, but he did not cringe at that. He didn't stop at that. He willingly went and did all that he possibly could and even after coming out of the sickness remained with Paul until Paul told him it was time for him to return. When we read in the scripture something like this, it causes us once again to take an assessment of our own desire and commitment to serve our Savior regardless of the cost. Are we committed to serve the Lord and thus to serve each other within our communities of faith? even if doing so would result in hardship or even persecution. In our modern world, it seems that commitment to these kinds of things is 
all is continually waning. It seems that pretty much uh, many different kinds of things can be excuses for saying, well, I'm not going to be able to uh, gather together this week, or I'm not going to be able to do this uh, you know, with the community this week, and so forth and so on. Well, uh, granted, there are always exigencies and problems that we have to deal with. I understand that. But shouldn't we make being together, even if we're doing it just online, shouldn't we make that a priority if indeed the scriptures teach that we shouldn't forsake the gathering of ourselves together and when the scriptures clearly teach that we are helpers one to the other to grow in the things of the Lord and to be encouraged. In fact, it's one of those means of grace which God has clearly laid out for us. And so we ought to hold it as a very high responsibility and privilege and not just allow um, minimal things to keep us from meeting together. He goes on to say that Epaphroditus was a worker in the Lord for the work of the Messiah. Here Paul emphasizes a very important point, and it is this. When we serve each other in accordance with the Scriptures, and when we provide for one another in order to meet one another's needs, we are truly serving Yeshua himself and accomplishing the very work in which he intends us to engage. You know, sometimes when we think about helping someone, we think, well, we're just helping this person. But if we're doing it with the right heart and with the right uh, purpose, then we're doing it for the Lord. When we obey the Lord, we're honoring Him. Did He not command us in the Scriptures to bear one another's burdens and thus to fulfill the Torah of Messiah Himself? Yes. In fact, this ought to be the primary motivation for helping one another and bearing each other's burdens within our local communities of faith. What ought to be our primary motivation is that we care for each other in order to first and foremost honor Yeshua, who humbled himself to serve us by giving his life to assure our eternity with him. And... uh, as we live in this world, as we see the kinds of things that are going on around us, they're not new necessarily. This has happened uh, for millennia. That the world wants to encroach upon our uh, faith. The world wants to make us into something that would dishonor the Lord. But when we care for each other and help each other, we strengthen our faith together. And we know that what he has told us is true. That Yeshua did come. That he did die upon a cross. That he was laid in a tomb and he rose on the third day and he ascended on high. And all of this was in fulfillment of the words of the prophets. And this is history. This is reality. And as we help each other and encourage each other, We strengthen the faith of one another in what we know to be true. So when we truly care for one another, we honor Yeshua. And when we honor Him, we, as a community, are enabled to be a greater witness of His saving grace. When the world outside is looking upon us and they see us caring for one another and doing it with joy and maintaining 
our love for one another as well as for our Savior, there has to be an impact upon those who see. Paul goes on to uh, describe Epaphroditus this way, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, Paul is not rebuking the community of faith in Philippi when he speaks of their deficiency in serving him. His words are to be understood as simply noting that the community was too distant from him to attend to his needs, and that sending Epaphroditus was indeed the very thing they could do to minister to his needs. In other words, the whole community couldn't come. That would have been an impossibility, and it wouldn't have been wise. But they could send someone like Epaphroditus. Thus, as Paul will note in chapter 4, it was by no means that they had failed to support Paul, but that they lacked opportunity, that is, they were too distant from him for the community as a whole to minister to his needs. He writes in chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Shall we lacked ability to express that concern. Here we see the necessary action which derives from knowing and receiving the wonderful song of Messiah, as we had in chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in the Messiah, Yeshua, and so forth and so on, that Paul gives us in this chapter a theme that he begins in the early verses of this chapter and which is then made so applicable by focusing on the incarnation of our Savior and his giving himself to redeem all who are his. So if we really believe that Yeshua is who he has revealed himself to be, and if we really believe that we are to become more and more like him in action, in words, in thoughts, then we are more and more ready to serve one another and to care for each other. If we have this glorious truth consistently in our thoughts, then by the work of the Ruach, we will be more and more desirous and able to serve each other in our respective communities and to do in accordance and to do so in accordance with the scripture's instructions following the example of our savior who gave himself for us so it's the giving of ourselves not looking for applause not looking for being held up as important that we do this work we must have this mind, the same mind that was in the Messiah, who did not consider equality with God, that is, to be seen in all of his glory, to be something that he had to grasp onto, but he gave that up for, um, uh, he set it aside, the outward manifestations in the whole of his glory, and took upon himself human flesh. That, of course, is the mystery of mysteries, but it's the ultimate and supreme example that we are to give ourselves to the good of others. And in doing that, we become whom God wants us to be. As we follow His ways, as we help one another in accordance with what He teaches us, and in doing so, we help one another in our growth of being witnesses for the Lord. Now, we come to chapter 3, and we see that there's this uh, 
encouragement of Paul to be for one another and to help one another and to be witnesses for, for Yeshua. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. The opening, finally, <laughs> boy, if you read the commentaries, there's plenty on this. Uh, this these, this opening word, finally, literally, yeah, well, that's uh, that's one way we can certainly um, understand the, the Greek, toi uh, oipon, has uh, caused some to speculate that the extant manuscript evidence for the epistle of Philippians has been pieced together from various scraps or other epistles of Paul which have not been preserved. Because, he says, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. So that sounds like he had written something earlier to the Philippians. Why don't we have that? Well, there are some amongst the commentators who say there must have been things that were written that we don't have. And uh, some would say, well, they must not have been uh, on the level of inspired scripture, so that's why they weren't maintained and so forth. Okay, well, but that isn't exactly how we need to interpret this, I don't think. Um, so the idea that there were things that he wrote that were not preserved, for it is clear that this finally is not introducing the near conclusion of the letter itself. When he says finally, he's not just about ready to wrap up this epistle. We have this chapter and one more. So what does it mean? Well, rather than thinking there were letters that were written earlier that have been lost, I think such speculation regarding the integrity of this epistle as we have it well attested in the extant manuscripts is without warrant. In other words, speculating that it's really not all there. For the Greek loipos uh, can carry the sense of furthermore or to mark the beginning of a uh, or with and a now or furthermore. In other words, now he's going on to another uh, section. Or, well then... <laughs> We could also understand this opening word of our chapter to mean, as for what remains to be said. Paul uses this Greek uh, word, uh, loipos, in this manner in chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, and I, can, uh, I note also 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, where he uses the same word in kind of the same way, like he's starting kind of a new idea or he's uh, going over something that he's already said previously in the letter or whatever. I think, therefore, we might more correctly understand the opening word of this chapter as highlighting another important issue that Paul wishes to present to the Philippian community, and thus to us as well. And this issue is that of false teachers who lead people astray by the errant teaching that they give. Well, that is something that we in the so-called messianic movement, whatever you want to call it, need to be aware of. There are plenty of teachers out there that have regular podcasts, that have regular teachings, that give, that write books and publish them, and they have, uh, they have very, very astute uh, organizations, and they have their materials all over the internet, and they're easy to find and and easy to listen to, and so forth and so on. But the question is, are they maintaining the integrity of the scriptural? message. And that's what Paul is saying. We need to test this. We need to be careful. 
and not be persuaded by a teacher who's going to lead us into error. Now, sometimes false teachers sound very good. (laughs) They seem, well, he really has a great argument there. He's shown me this, that, and the other. But it isn't unlikely that, well, I should say, it's likely that many times a false teacher misrepresents the scriptures. He may sound very scholarly and so forth and so on, but it's not really what the scriptures are saying. And people that don't have the ability to uh, use the original languages maybe listen to him and say, oh, well, that sounds interesting. I've never heard that before. Well, that ought to be the first flag. If you've never heard it before, then at least you ought to say we need another witness. But you can understand, I think, that in this early rising up of the followers of Yeshua in Paul's day, there were plenty who may have just said, oh, this is something new and wonderful, without really knowing what it was, and were easily persuaded against it by those who say, no, 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 they're all wrong. They're, you know, they're, you come back to our Jewish uh, way of doing things and, and you'll be okay. You could see there, would, there was persecution, right? So there were those who were wondering, is this for real? Is it, you know, whatever. And there were those who were trying to persuade people who had become followers of Yeshua that they made a big mistake. They had a lot of history behind them. They said, look, we've been doing this for millennia. Why all of a sudden is this something new? Well, it's not really something new, but it was for some because they were so taken up with their man-made religion. We have the same thing going on in our times. And we see people who are, I think, really want to know the truth and are having a very difficult time finding it and and sometimes are led astray by those who are very uh, good in their speaking and very able to give a, a wonderful message and so forth and so on. But what they're telling them is not the core truth of the Scriptures. He says, first of all, My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Here is Paul, incarcerated in a Roman prison, awaiting the final verdict of his trial, which could result either in his release or his execution, and yet he admonishes us to rejoice in the Lord. I've often wondered, would I be strong enough to do that? Well, we don't have to fear what we will do if we come into dire straits because we are told and we believe it to be true that God will give us the answers we need, will give us the strength that we need to endure hardship. And this is clear in Paul's life. He says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And the point is clear. As followers of Yeshua, And those who are led and energized by the Ruach HaKodesh, we are enabled to mourn with those who mourn, to weep with those who weep, and to be joyful in the good things that come our way. And yet in all of these different aspects of life, we are called to rejoice in the Lord, knowing that He causes all things to work together for our good and His glory, and that He has promised to keep us for Himself and to eventually bring us into his very presence for all eternity. So, the idea that the prosperity gospel that became so popular some years ago and is still very much part of many 
of the uh, uh, church movements. The prosperity gospel, that if you come to faith in Jesus, that you'll have a life of, of riches and, and, and everything will go right and everything will be good and, and so forth and so on. Well, there's nothing wrong with saying that things will be good, but the question is, how do you define that? The scriptures make it clear that we may suffer for the Lord, that we may go through trials and even tribulations, but that in all of this, He will stand with us and be with us and enable us as we trust Him to continue to persevere and thereby to be true witnesses of His greatness. So, sometimes the hard times are what help us become what God wants us to be. In all of these different aspects of life, we are called to rejoice in the Lord knowing that He causes all things to work together for good, for our good and His glory, and that He has promised to keep us for Himself and to eventually bring us into His very presence for all eternity. Affirming our Savior's infinite power and universal sovereignty to bring about His holy will continues to strengthen us even in the most difficult of times to trust Him for every aspect of our lives and especially to give us the strength and ability to persevere through the trials of life for His glory. And, once again, I think that it is the uh, gathering together that helps us uh, grow in this reality. As we encourage each other, as we help each other, as we pray for and with each other. Again, it is just, in my opinion, so... uh, Egregious when we hear people uh, saying that now they're questioning whether or not uh, there really is any reality to the Bible and so forth. And we know that God will lose none of those who are His. And yet, it is in the, in the mystery of it all, it is a cooperative work that we must bow our hearts and minds before the Lord, seek His strength, affirm what we know to be true, and help one another be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. So, even in the most difficult times, we must persevere through the trials of life for His glory. And in doing so, we are able to present a living testimony to others of what it means to be a true disciple of Yeshua. This again is what the uh, Reformers referred to as uh, sola gloria, or sola deo gloria. All of it for the glory of God. Surely we were saved by His grace in order to give us a life rather than to be forever under His condemnation. Absolutely. Do we gain great things through the fact that He has called us to Himself and saved us? Absolutely. But ultimately, all that we are and all that we hope to be must accrue to His glory, for without Him we are nothing. In affirming here the spiritual need to rejoice in the Lord, Paul is simply emphasizing what he had stated repeatedly in the previous chapters. 
How many times do we hear him talking about joy or being happy? Chapter 1, verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Or chapter 2, verse 2, making my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. The very verse we just finished. You see, the idea that walking in faith is to be kind of a, oh, poor me, I'm here in the world, and the world's so bad, and so forth and so on. No, there is also a very strong sense of rejoicing. Just think what God has given us in Yeshua and by the indwelled Spirit. Just think what He has done for us and what He is now accomplishing for us at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us. And just consider what it will be like to see Him as He truly is. Our lives are ultimately to bring glory to Him. However, in our text, he adds, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You notice that in these that I just read, it never says rejoice in the Lord. It just says rejoice. But in our text, he adds, in the Lord. And by this addition, emphasizes that our ability to rejoice, even in difficult times, is that our true joy and ability to rejoice is when we continually contemplate our union with the Messiah, that we are in him, and that he has accomplished all that is necessary for our eternal abode with him. In other words, to rejoice in what the Lord is, to rejoice in what the Lord has done, to rejoice in what the Lord will do and is doing. All of that is to have well in mind what the Lord has done for us, what the scriptures teach us about who the Lord is and who we are in him. This is why it's so important to have the Word of God well entrenched in our hearts and minds. He says, To write the same things again is not is no trouble to me. There is no clear evidence that Paul had written previous letters to the Philippian community, letters which have been lost, as we talked about earlier. What is more, the Greek itself does not contain the word again, but is added by translators on the basis of the words the same things. But it seems most likely that Paul is reiterating some of the same teachings he gave to the Philippian community while he was there with them in person. In other words, he's writing that which he had formerly taught them and especially warning them to be on guard regarding false teachers and those who would lead them astray from the truth. But he deems it necessary in order to encourage the Philippian believers to remain focused on the truth especially as he is unable to be with them and to guard them from those who might come into their community with errant teachings. As one who was a shepherd, as an apostle, and was helping them find the truth and to walk in it, now he's removed from them without the ability to be in their midst. And so he's saying, I need to reiterate, this is my understanding, I need to reiterate once again what I taught you earlier. I need to refresh your memory of what is good and right and what is necessary. 
And he said, It is a safeguard for you. It is the truth that sets us free, and it is the truth that guards us. For it is by knowing the truth that we are enabled to stand against the schemes of the evil one, and thereby to be living testimonies of God's truth to a watching world. So, we must be immersed in the Scriptures. We must know them. And when we hear something new and novel, we ought to make it the habit to say, where do we find that clearly taught in the Scriptures? If there's no answer forthcoming as to where it is carefully and openly taught in the Scriptures, then it's to be rejected. In the first chapter of this epistle, Paul does give a general warning to the Philippian community regarding those who oppose the true message of the gospel as presented by Paul. He says in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Messiah, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So it may well be that there was an increased effort among the false teachers seeking to dismantle the true apostolic message and to persuade followers of Yeshua to abandon their confession of faith in Yeshua. Whatever the circumstances, Paul was led by the Spirit to warn the Philippian believers not to be led astray by those who are seeking to undermine the true message of the Scriptures, all of which point to Yeshua as the promised Messiah and Savior. And this is a great admonition for us, especially for us, for those of us that are in what we would call the Messianic movement, where we're, we're meeting together, we're affirming the truth of the Scriptures, all 66 books. We believe that Yeshua is the only means of salvation. And we're seeking to obey God by keeping His Torah as best we're able to do. And to rejoice in the Shabbat. To rejoice in the Moedim, in the festivals. And together to grow up in Him as a light in this darkened world. So, we must be careful with what we hear and how we accept it and make sure that it's based upon the scriptures. I'm so grateful that uh, you all came tonight. And that's where we're going to end. So thanks again for coming and look forward to being with you next week as we continue our study in Philippians.